Supporters for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney and Pixar's Onward. The movie IGN says, will tug at your heartstrings from the very start. Directed by Dan Scanlon. Onward is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Kemp Powers is having a fantastic awards season. His 2013 play One Night in Miami, about the 1964 gathering of Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown, has been turned into an Amazon feature and is up for an adapted WGA screenplay nomination, as well as three Golden Globes and two SAG Award nominations. And Powers' Disney Pixar movie that he co-wrote and co-directed, Soul, about a New York jazz pianist trying to get a second lease on life, is also up for two Golden Globe nominations, including Best Animated Feature. Powers is here with us today on Crew Call. One of the things that really intrigues me about about your career is how One Night Miami started as a stage play here in Los Angeles. And I've covered the, the comedy scene here quite extensively uh, since I've been an entertainment journalist, since 99 here, and have often directly seen a line of how, whether sketch comedians or comedic artists or stand-ups make it direct, or immediately catapulted from the clubs or from the, the black box theaters into, into Hollywood. It's a very different situation if you're a stage actor or a playwright here uh quite often new york is the launch pad for that if you want to get into the industry and that's what one of the things that fascinated me about can you tell us about the getting the play off the ground how it started and what happened what happened immediately after you staged it back in 2013 it was at a a a waiver an equity waiver theater on, yes. on Pico Boulevard across from Roscoe's. Yes, Rogue Machine Theater. Yes, correct. Um, well, I mean, you, you kind of said it in your thesis statement, which is, uh, I mean, it was never meant to be a launching pad into Hollywood. Um, it, was, it was always meant to be, this was a story I really wanted to tell. Um, I was just starting up my playwriting. Um, I, I never studied playwriting. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, even though I'm from New York and grew up going to theater, I, I didn't come out of a theater program. I, I'd actually, you know, kind of fallen into playwriting much more organically just as a member of this theater company. Um, I'm not an actor, never have been an actor, um, just as a storyteller and writing short plays and 24-hour plays. So my 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 goal and expectation for the, the play was never to use it as a launch pad into anything other than writing another play. <laughs> so... So you know, it had a, it had a, it was very well received at that world premiere production, um, and and like you said, it was it was an equity waiver production. So of course, you know, seeing how well it was received, I wanted to kind of continue shepherding the play and hoping to have it ha- have a life that you know might lead to London or or New York City, and um, it actually did end up making its way to to London after several years. Um, and I also you know I wrote other plays, um, you know, had other plays produced, not, not to the level of success and notability as, um, One Night in Miami, but yeah, I was just kind of focusing on my, my playwriting. Um, and 
it's interesting because the producers, um, two of the producers, Keith Calder and Jess Wu, um, they saw the original production and um, they actually approached me. God, it must've been the first month that the play was running and asked me if I had any interest in, in seeing it as a film. And my initial reaction was just like, no way. Like it's a, it's a play. That's the way it's meant to be. You know, it, the, the, the play is quite different than the film, by the way, you know, the play is real time. It begins when the four men enter the room and it ends 90 minutes later when they leave the room. It, it's really meant to be staged as simply as it's, it's so simple the setup that you could do it with four folding chairs in a gymnasium. You know, it's very, it's very, very simple um, setup. And at the time that they approached me, I really couldn't imagine how one would adapt it into a screenplay. And God bless them. I mean, Keith and Jess would just come back like every six months or so and be like, have you changed your mind? Have you changed your mind? Have you changed your mind? And every few months turned into several years. And oddly enough, like of several years later, very organically, I had started moving into film and television. Um, and, you know, by this time I'd sold some, I'd sold a TV show, I'd staffed on some shows, um, I'd written some, I'd written some features, um, I, and, and I was finally at a point where I, I was able to look at my own work and imagine how I might adapt it into, like, seeing how it might live as a film while retaining the central core themes that I thought made the story so special. And so, you know, it kind of took me growing into becoming a screenwriter to finally be open to the idea of having the play be adapted into a film. So even, even then, though, when it got optioned and I, and I signed on to write the first draft, I fully expected another writer to come along later and rewrite it. I mean, that's just the way it works. Um, I, I know how it can be seen as a negative for a writer to adapt their own work. Um, so I tried to be as... Um, clinical about it as humanly possible, you know, look at my own work as source material the same way I would as if you gave me anyone else's book <laughs> or play. Um, but I was just hoping that I could prove the concept that the film could still work being a roughly a very contained film, not contained the way the stage play is, but something that still largely lives in a contained space and focuses on this conversation, which the conversation is supposed to be the action. It's supposed to be a metaphorical boxing ring in that hotel room. So I, I, I had an idea of how to execute it. And that was the draft. And that was the draft that they went out to get directors with. And I was pretty surprised when Regina read it and wanted me to stay on board as the writer and, and, and wanted to actually go with the version of the film that I'd, I'd written because I was fully expecting, um, as is usually the case, um, more writers to follow me and and change it into something else. Now, did um, when you know um, when you were re you know I, I understand this came out because you were you were looking to write a book. Correct. Correct me if right. I'm wrong yeah. about about um, the, the four guys. The four men. Yeah. Well, I'm going to jump ahead here. Has. Have you reached out to Jim Brown? Has Jim Brown seen seen the movie? He's the one who's alive. Um, I've heard that he had. I mean, I reached out when it was still a play. Um, in fact, there was one night where we had a whole block of seats reserved for him that he was supposed to come, and then he didn't show up. I think something else came up. Um, but I know, like, his daughter came. Heck, one of his daughters was actually in the movie. 
Um, oh my God. Yeah, she plays Sonny Liston's wife. There's a moment in the Liston fight where you see Liston's wife shouting at him from the, um, from the audience. That's actually one of Jim Brown's daughters. So, um, you know, I, I made attempts early on um, just because he lives right there in the Hollywood, he lived right there in the Hollywood Hills. And, and, you know, I remember once, I think it was after the first week of the play, me and some of the cast members drove up to his house and were putting flyers under his gate and hope, I mean, like I said, it was equity waiver, man. Like we, we were, you know, just trying to, to get his attention, but no, I never managed to have any conversations with him. And I've heard through the grapevine, I think it was Aldous who plays uh, Jim Brown in the film, who said that, um, I believe one of his daughters said that he finally saw the film and enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, no, I never really, I never had any contact with him. Is, is there a, um, is there a mystique? Is there a reason why this particular night, why, why, why we don't know what went down? Your estimate, your, 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 your assumption of it is brilliant and makes sense given what was going on with their lives shortly after. But I'm, I'm just curious, is there a reason why there's a mystique out there as to what, 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 what did they say to each other? Or, well, or I mean, now, I mean, since the play's first been produced, there's been, it's, it's interesting. It was, it was a moment that was always out there that I think a lot of people didn't attach much significance to it. I immediately attached significance to it just because of the four men involved, particularly asking myself about Sam Cooke. Like Sam Cooke was my way into this story because I couldn't help but wonder like, wow, you know, what I, I knew Sam Cooke knew Muhammad Ali because he recorded a song with him. But the idea of like, oh, Sam Cooke being around Malcolm X, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to learn more about that just because Sam Cooke was such a pop star. And, you know, having read some, already read some pretty amazing stuff about Sam Cooke, including um, You Send Me, that's Wolf's book, and um, Dream Boogie, Peter Goralnik's incredible um, book about Sam Cooke. Um, I, I knew that Sam Cooke was a, you know, was a hyper-conscious individual, and I was really dying to learn, and, all, and already my favorite artist of all time. So I was dying to know more about his connection to, to each of those men. But I, I don't know why people didn't focus on it. I know after the play came out, it seemed like there was a lot more focus on what happened, because I, I, I continue to read every new book that gets published on any one of these guys, and it was interesting to note that after 2013, as new books got published, that night started taking on much more significance. So little details would kind of, you know, I already knew about like the vanilla ice cream, but then I think there was like a new Jim Brown biography that came out a few years later that mentioned the specific night and some of the conversations. Um, yeah, there was just a number of every every year that goes by, every new publication, there's more and more of a focus on 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 that night. But I, I can't answer the question as to why it wasn't as significant to other people before then, because it's the, the day I read that paragraph um, in a book, I mean, my imagination went wild. Uh, Malcolm and Sam, were they always in a disagreement over... No, no. The, the, dis the disagreement is my fabrication, you know. Because it's brilliant. I know. I mean, you can't, you can't have a film or story without conflict. 
I mean, no one wants to see, do I believe there was a fight, an argument in the room? Of course not. I mean, but that wouldn't be worthy of a film or even a play if there's a zero conflict. What I wanted to do was looking at what each of those men represented and distilling them down to their, you know, political essence, having them be avatars for an, for an argument, for a debate that, that, that transcends any one of the four. It's a debate that always has been going on long before those four men. It's a debate that I have with my peers. It's a debate that might be going on right now in a barbershop. It's just that the four of them represent some of the purest forms of that line of thinking. So, so, and, and again, the whole point of telling the story in that way with the conflict is to kind of get across the lesson that we can vehemently disagree with one another and still be allies and still be on the same side. That was one of the, that's meant to be one of the lessons of the film and the lessons of the story. So no, I, I would assume that, you know, that, that their relationship in real life was always much more respectful than that. But again, that doesn't, that, that's, that, that's not enough worthy drama for a, for a film. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the setup is just fantastic. I mean, February 25th, 1964 is when they, they spend time this evening uh, in, in the hotel after uh, Muhammad Ali's um, uh, heavyweight championship fight against Sonny Liston. Uh, about, and then in December 11th, 1964, Sam Cooke would be shot. And then practically a year later, February 21st, 1965, Malcolm X is assassinated. Mm -hmm. And then before the fall of the 1964 season, Jim Brown's acting career, he would, he would, he would essentially retire from the NFL and go into, go into acting. Yeah. It's just a very, um, it, it, it's it was a crucible a, year for all four men. That's what I mean. Yeah. Calendar takes care of itself in terms of like, okay, you know, choosing, taking each of those four men and wanting to bring them into the room with a wound, so to speak. Real life provided the wounds for each of the four men. It was, it was a transformative year for all four of them. And of course, quite transformative in that two of them weren't going to live another 365 days. <laughs> so I, I mean, and then of course, there's the added tragedy that Malcolm's autobiography wouldn't be published till after he was gone, after he was dead. And that Sam's A Change Is Gonna Come, which he actually recorded before the night, wouldn't be released as a single until after he was dead. He did only perform it live once on The Tonight Show. That's the only time he performed it. Um, so he didn't even live to see that the, the social impact of his most socially conscious song. Um, but, but again, it's, 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 not, um, it's not meant to, you know, that, that's why I call it historical fiction. It's not meant to, uh, here, like the best way to explain, I, I remember when I was first starting to write the story and imagine what the conflict was. And I was, I was asking myself certain questions. Like, and the question I asked was, okay, what does Sam Cooke represent? What kind of success does Sam Cooke represent? And he represents this kind of financial independence, you know, that is like, you cannot question that. Not only is he a musician and a gifted musician, maybe one of the most gifted of all time, but he's also in control of his own financial destiny. He, he knows about um, owning the masters to his music. He, he knows about songwriting. He, he knows about licensing. He owns his own record company. 
he's actually in the boss's chair. And financial success makes him a person to look up to. And so I said, okay, if I want to argue against that, (laughs) if I want to say like, okay, despite all these things, that that's not enough, then how would I attack? And that's what I was constantly doing. I was kind of challenged. It was no different than what we do if you're in, if you grew up and were in um, speech and debate as a kid, you know, you have a point and you have a counterpoint and, um, and it's just exercising those same muscles. And, and I remember thinking back to an argument that I was having with a friend of mine years ago. I don't even remember which friend I was having the argument about it with, but it was about Lincoln Perry, um, step and fetch it because he had made a point to me. He said, well, you know, Lincoln Perry, step and fetch it at the time that he was performing, he was like the richest black man in Hollywood and maybe one of the richest black men in America. He was a multimillionaire. Um, and I was like, okay, so what's your point? And he said, well, you know, he should be someone that we look up to. I was like, he became a millionaire peddling negative, negative images of black people. And we got into a pretty interesting, healthy debate about that. But if Malcolm represents this idea of pure consciousness and militants and never bending. I was like, oh, would Malcolm then kind of compare a Sam Cooke character who's about business to a step and fetch it? And that's how the debate kind of started in my brain. Now, do I think that Sam Cooke has anything in common with? No, of course not. But to an extreme militant who sees any effort to ever appeal to any white person as selling out, it's not as far a leap to take to call someone a sellout or, you know, and and it's just like that. These are the kinds of um, vigorous debates that we learn to participate in, in the the healthy spirit of debate that I just wanted to kind of bring to this argument between those guys. So that's, that's just one example of kind of how I started constructing these arguments in my mind. Now, when you adapted it for the screen, did you completely rewrite it or are there elements there are elements are there sequences I, that are very yeah similar. there are elements but it's quite different i mean what the the first part of the play that gets recreated in the film is probably around 45 or 50 minutes into the movie so there is like when they arrive in the hotel room yeah pretty much like that's yeah. the first so everything before that obviously does not exist in any way shape or form in the play then once they get into the room it's restructured remember we're talking about a 90 minute play in a movie that's still under two hours in which you don't even get to the room until almost 50 minutes in. So what happens even when they're in the room, while it's thematically the same and some of the dialogue is the same, a lot of it has been restructured and reimagined. Where does the play end, if you don't mind me asking, because it's such a beautiful ending. The play, well, Uh, the play is different. In the play, um, the guards, Kareem and Jamal, have a bigger role. Because in the play, the, a disco- I told you, the story is actually different. In the play, near the end, they are going back out to basically go down to the diner. And Malcolm, they find out that Malcolm can't leave the room. That he's actually a prisoner in the room. And the guards who are supposed to be looking after him are actually his jailers. And only Sam discovers this. And Malcolm convinces Sam not to share it with the others. So in the end of the play, Malcolm is left alone with the two guards who kind of like suddenly do this transformation and you realize 
have been this air of menace hanging over the entire thing. And that's how the play ends. The play actually ends on a very tragic note. Wow. So it's, wow. it's quite different. Um, Sam Cooke in the play sings in, a change is going to come a cappella in the hotel room to Jim. So the moment when he said, in the, the moment in the film where he says, well, how does it go? In the play, he sang it at that moment while they were outside. He sang it for Jim, and it was just a, a very quiet acapella version of A Change is Gonna Come. There is no Tonight Show either. Supporters for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney and Pixar's Onward. The movie IGN says, will tug at your heartstrings from the very start. Directed by Dan Scanlon. Onward is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Tell us about getting your, getting your agent, getting onto Star Trek Discovery, was it was it a set of your plays that landed you a gig at Star Trek Discovery? Was a sample of your plays? Yeah, um, Brian Fuller read One Night in Miami. That's um, yeah, that was that's what got me on Star Trek Discovery. Brilliant, because um, I didn't have yeah, I <laughs> my samples were my theater writing. Um, and then and then tell us about getting into Pixar. They also read One Night in Miami. That that's the sample that also made them interested in me. The the play, it was um they hadn't read the screenplay, um and um I also had a TV show, an unproduced TV show that I'd sold to FX, um that the pilot was written, um but they didn't greenlight it, so I also had that. So Pixar read One Night in Miami and my unproduced um FX pilot, and that's what made them invite me to to work on Soul. And this was all, let's keep in mind, this was all before Regina came aboard yes. to do the movie. Yes, I finished, I finished the draft of the script for the film version of One Night in Miami about three or four days before my first day at Pixar. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I got so, hired at Pixar. I was already writing the script. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an exclusive deal. When you're working at Pixar, you're, you're just working at Pixar. So I had to finish up whatever I had going on. And I remember turning in the draft of the the script, the screenplay about three or four days before I started at Pixar um, in 2018. Um, and, and over the course of the next six months, I was able to do uh, another revision on it. And that was the version that they went out to directors with and ended up connecting with Regina. Uh, at Pixar, uh, are, are you still, are you still in the, in the Pixar? Uh... No, I'm back in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, what, what, can you tell us what you're working on now? It's top secret. Sorry. Yeah. I'm working on a couple of things, but, um, unfortunately I'm not allowed to, to tell people publicly what they are, what they are yet. Understood. Understood. Now you arrive at Pixar. They've already kind of sort of been developing this. Tell us what state it was in and what you brought to the pro, what you brought to the pot. You, sure. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. You brought the jazz. <laughs> well, the jazz was in it, but I'd like to say I, I brought a little more than that. I, I mean, it, the, it, you have to understand the process of making a Pixar film. You usually go through a lot of writers. Um, I mean, Soul's a little bit different in that there's only three credited writers, me, Mike, and Pete Doctor. I mean, take a look at the credits on a Toy Story movie. You're going to see like eight names on my and and that's the process the process with Pixar is the writers kind of take it to a certain point then it's not uncommon for new writers to come in and kind of pass the baton to that writer you know so 
the point at which I came in on Soul was actually a very natural point at which a new writer often comes in on a project where it was still Mike and Pete had been developing the idea um, for, for a couple of years, but they were just really getting started in the storyboarding. I think they were on either their second or third set of full story reels on the film. And over the course of a Pixar film, you usually do between seven and nine full sets of reels. So it was still pretty early. I mean, the, the film, none of the film was in production yet. It was still in the script and storyboarding stage, which was great because that meant that there was a lot of opportunity to make some pretty dramatic changes to the script. But one of the things that was already there was that, you know, it was Joe Gardner. He was a middle-aged jazz musician um, from, from New York, New York City. Um, and, um, but I think it was maybe a little bit before that, that um, they kind of were on the fence about who the main character was going to be, Joe or 22. I think there were earlier versions where it was really 22's movie. Um, and so now they were kind of looking at, should Joe Gardner be the main character? And that's what really excited me because while his character wasn't very clearly drawn out, and again, that's not meant to be a criticism, at this stage in the development of most Pixar films, the characters are still vague. You know, like um, if you... If you interview anyone who's done one of these movies, you get to the good movie by making the bad version over and over and over and over again. And there's no shame in that. So, you know, Joe was just not clearly defined yet. And there were still some big questions from story structure standpoint that we still needed to get figured out. So for me, it felt like the perfect place, the perfect project to be working on. You know, I had a personal connection to the main character just based on his age and his background from the same city. I felt like, oh, I have lots of ideas drawing from my own personal experience that I think could really help fill in a lot of the blanks. Um, but on top of that, I just loved the story and the boldness of the story that, um, that Pete wanted to tell because so much of what we learn in the, the family entertainment when we grow up is, is about the hero fights for the entire film to get their dream, to realize their dream. And even in this early stage of the film, it was already clear that our main character was going to, spoiler alert, realize his dream about two thirds of the way through the film and then be dissatisfied. And that was like, whoo, that was such an exciting prospect because it mirrored real life in a way that I'd never seen anyone try to do in, 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 a, in general family entertainment. And it was very much the artist's journey, like being a creative who'd been struggling for years and years, years past the point when people say you should have given up. Um, I, I totally understood. And, and I also understood that like getting the big job, getting that thing doesn't suddenly transform your life and make you a different person. You know, like you still have all the same faults you still have all the same wounds. It doesn't heal them. And I thought, wow, what a bold, exciting thing to be doing that in, in an animated feature. <laughs> so the story on a base level, removing race from it, to me was just like so exciting. There was always a heaven element in it, though. There was yeah. always something where the protagonist dies. Oh, absolutely. In the version before I came on board... They never went to earth. It started with him dead. 
They're the version that I saw before I came on board, the Joe Gardner character wakes up in, and he's a spirit and he doesn't know where he is or who he is. And he starts piecing his life together slowly, but he's already, it, the movie started with him dead already. So it, it changed pretty, pretty dramatically. I mean, the nuance, the respect to jazz, the, just the shot of Dorothea playing the saxophone is just, everything is just delicious in his life. His life is such a beautiful life and what he's doing and teaching. And you made, it, 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 it's, it, it's like a, a, Jimmy, a Jimmy Stewart character. Yeah, I mean, we, there are movies we love so much like A Christmas Carol and more importantly, It's a Wonderful Life. That was a movie that we just kept returning to again and again. Like I hadn't seen It's a Wonderful Life in years and years and I rewatched it shortly after I started on Soul and I'd forgotten how dark it was. You know, like I, I really, I was like, wow. I didn't remember like the, the owner of the drugstore hitting him in the head till his ears bled. I was like, how did I not remember any of this? The, the suicide thing as well. Yeah, I, I was just, he almost poisoned the, pa- the patient. I mean, because he, he was drunk. So watching It's a Wonderful Life again, I was like, oh, okay. We, I guess we can have, we're not going that dark. <laughs> so it, it, you know, but it, but it did feel like what we were trying to do was bold. I mean, I would, sometimes I would joke in our, when we were breaking story and be like, wow, I never thought I'd get to, an honest stab at making a Terrence Malick movie for kids. <laughs> and here we are. Um, who is Dorothea uh, inspired by? She's um, great. Yeah. I mean, a number of different people. I mean, we, we, we talked about like the tradition, like Miles Davis was a name that started off coming up just because he's such a famous band leader who people see as aloof. But then when you speak to people who work with him, they talk about how warm he was and how giving he was to people in his circle. And knowing the arc we wanted to have Dorothea go on where, you know, at first when she met Joe, she would literally be very aloof. But over the course of the film, her arc, she would warm up to him as she accepted him. Miles Davis was someone who came into mind. But, but there were also a number of, there aren't as many anywhere near as many as men, but there are like some of the lady band leaders. I mean, one of our um, consultants, Terry Lynn Carrington, who's a world famous drummer and a band leader herself, would, would, was really a great help in, in discussing like some of the traits that it takes to be a leader as a woman in, this, in a business that's really a boys club. And, and jazz is really, really a boys club. So the input of folks like Terry Lynn, I mean, we, we love the Dorothea Williams character. I know I do. Is it true that the barbershop sequence took 40, re, 40 rewrites? At least, I rewrote it at least, yeah, probably. Why, why was that? Why was that? Because it worked initially, it worked out the gate from an entertainment standpoint, but it did not work right away from a story standpoint, from a story structure standpoint. When I first wrote the, the scene, it got lots of laughs. People loved the culture. They, they loved the flavor of it. But it was also a double beat. Um, it, you, there were questions about um, it wasn't moving our character forward. It wasn't moving the story forward. I'm not talking about the final version in the film. That version is successful. But it took a long time to discover 
to break that out. And 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 Barbara, there were a few scenes that were actually like that. Um, another scene that I I rewrote. A, I mean, just so many times it was actually the first scene I started writing. A sequence called Suit, and it's the scene when Joe um, talks to his mother, honestly for the first time, based Probably, on. Your yeah, my own experiences. Your own experiences. So, yeah. and I probably had to rewrite that one close to just as many times as Barbara. Um, but, but again, rewriting is a big, big part of the process. Again, I don't think that you hear that and you go, oh my God, that must have been a night. That's just the process of making a Pixar film because the films are always broken. We almost never have a full script. We're always working on things at the sequence level and out of sequence order. So a lot of times you'll write something and it seems like it's working and you tweak it, you tweak it, you tweak it. But then when it's put together with the entire film, it doesn't work because you only get those seven to nine times to see it together with the entire film. So Barber took a while to prove itself because it was also a later addition to the film. Um, and you know, it wasn't in the film, my first couple of reels there, and then I reached out to Pete about the desire to add the sequence. And it started from a very, honestly, just a very selfish place of just like, I want this guy to kind of travel through authentic black spaces and I want to see black hair. I mean, for all of our technology, we're not taking advantage of it to put, we weren't, I didn't think we were taking advantage of it to put a real shine on how beautiful, I mean, we were with the music and the performances and the jazz, but there were other elements of the Black characters I just thought we wanted to put on display with this incredibly beautiful film that we were making. Now, tell us about how you came to co-direct. I understand you're a quick learner. I am, quite. Um, and, you know, I from the very first day I came on board, I think Pete and Dana really wrapped me in to ask for my input in lots of areas outside of what they usually ask of screenwriters um, at Pixar. So, you know, they solicited my input with casting. They solicited my input with the character design, with the, the set design. Um, when, they, when they created these external and internal culture trusts, I became, you know, a key creative person who had to be in all those meetings. So it was kind of like dealing with that as well. Um, and then from there, Pete started inviting me into edit. And, you know, these films are made in edit. And again, I'm new to animation. So I'm just assuming that every writer is sitting in edit with the directors. I didn't realize that wasn't normally the, the, the case. Wow. So I'm just kind of doing everything that needs to be done to try to make a good film. And because it's a new, this isn't how live action works, I'm assuming a lot of the things that I'm doing are typical for um, writers at Pixar. And I didn't realize until about a year later when my writing was about to end and Pete and Dana pulled me aside and asked me to be co-director. Um, and I said, well, what does that mean? And he was like, oh, you've actually kind of been doing it for quite a while. Um, you know, you, you've been you know, and we were, we were, by this point, we were going into production. So I was sitting in on dailies, you know, in, in animation. So I was just, I would pretty much every meeting that Pete was in, I was in. So I kind of turned into his co-pilot, um, even before they, they officially um, made me co-director. Because I think, I know you'd have to ask Pete about this. I think there were just 
the, the story came from a very personal place for him, of course, um, a personal place for everyone who's involved. I mean, Mike inserted a lot of his personal experiences into, you know, this film. But I think it had just developed to the point where so much of my personal was also a part of the film that it, it kind of, it turned into a situation where I was kind of the co-director. So, <laughs> you know. The, uh, tell us about your early journalism career. What was your, what was your beat and who did you write for? Oh, I mean, God, that was like 17 years. I mean, it started off, um, you know, with me writing for my school paper at Howard, the Hilltop. Um, I, my, one of my first gigs was at Newsweek um, in the Washington DC Bureau um, in the nineties. Um, I, I wrote for a number of different music publications, um, Vibe and then Blaze Magazine. Um, I, I covered business for you. I was a reporter at Forbes magazine for several years. So after, right after Blaze shut down is when I took my first job at, a, at Forbes, largely just to, at the time, not be pigeonholed. So I was like, oh, business reporting, like that's something, you know, that knows no race. You know, after you've been covering music and hip hop, you just want to prove to people that you're not, you're able to write about anything. So that was a pretty great experience. Um, and, and, you know, at Reuters, um, for years doing, um, tech as well as a lot of general news. I was very much a generalist over, depending on when you caught me in my career, I was covering different things. And through it all, I always, um, did a lot of freelance writing for magazines. So, you know, my, my byline, in addition to my staffing job, you'd usually see my byline pop up in any, you know, number of magazines from, you know, Esquire to details, a lot of, you know, a lot of the men's, any place that was allowing those 2,500 to 5,000 word count <laughs> long form features that are kind of largely extinct right now. Um, I really enjoyed doing, doing those longer form pieces, but, um, but I, you know, my, my final, I was one of the people who made the transition from, you know, print to newswire to the internet. So my, my last um, full-time job was as front page news editor at Yahoo um, here, here in um, LA. Um, and when I got laid off of that job, that was, that was my last um, full-time journalism job. That was back in 20, 2013, 14. It was, it was not long after um, One Night in Miami debuted because largely that actually contributed to me getting laid off, I think, because I got, a, I was, I got my first bad performance review um, right after One Night in Miami opened. Um, <laughs> it was pretty funny. I remember uh, my manager saying, um, oh, you know, you're spending your spare time doing these plays. It doesn't seem like you want to be here. I'm like, but that's what I do in my spare time. I thought I could do it. It was a very, it was a very hilarious performance review, but I kind of left it going like, oh yeah, I'm about to get laid off. But, you know, they laid a lot of people off back then. <laughs> well, what's extremely inspiring before we go is how you in your 40s launched your writing career. Um, is that a hard thing to do? do? Does Hollywood, is it, is, does Hollywood look at your age or no? They look at your material. And it's excruciatingly hard. I think ageism trumps every other ism. Ageism is worse than racism and sexism. It really, really is. And, you know, I, I gotta say like you, the first time you staff, and I remember my first staffing job was actually Star Trek Discovery. So mm -hmm. you show up, and you realize 
you're older than the showrunner and the other staff writers are in their twenties and, you know, and many, and you know, there's a camaraderie that gets built in the writer's room and you kind of all, you come in there not having a group. Um, and it's based on age. <laughs> and you, I, I very quickly realized that like, I have to kind of level up somehow, some way or somehow, but like staffing at the low levels, there's not going to be much of this for me. Um, and, and thankfully my work bore itself out that I, I, I moved up very quickly, but I, I didn't have 10 years to kind of muck around with low level staffing job because culturally, yeah, there's, there's an ageism that permeates like everyone. There's, there's strains of ageism and I laugh about it. I'm like, I get it. If I were 22, I wouldn't want a 45 year old black guy hanging around at lunch either, but <laughs> you know, that's, but they, you, it's, it's very palpable. And, um, you know, I, I think what helped me actually keep my sanity through those struggles was also having theater, you know, like if I had a really, really bad experience, um, on, on a TV show, I could always like not go on to another show for a little while and instead spend some time working on one of my plays, um, again, and I, and this is a, you know, I was keeping a pretty tight budget, so, you know, never spending more, you know, I'm, you know, have kids and, and, and always like maintaining that budget so that never living beyond my means. But I think theater always was kind of a solve for me that allowed me to kind of recharge my, my, my energy banks to kind of go back in and, and kind of face a, a lot of the negativity um, that, that I, that I did early on. But eventually, thank goodness, I think my work kind of powered through, but, but ageism is, is really, it's really rough. Would you go on to another TV show? I've heard stories like uh, there was a kid, there was a, a kid, there was a young guy in my improv group like 10 years ago who was a, who was a writer on Two and a Half Men. And he described, a situ- he described the opposite situation. It was the older guys that ruled the roost. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, but there was always a, you know, yeah, I'm talking about an young. older guy who's a staff writer. Yeah, so it's an older guy who's at the same level <laughs> as uh, so. Um, and 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 I've had since then. I've had great experiences in TV writers' rooms. You know what I mean? I just I've had bad and I've had good. But through it all, age is just something that's like kind of always out there. And and the makeup of the room age is just very different dynamics. I I love television. Um, you know, I obviously like the rest of America that's been locked up. I've been watching in an inordinate amount of it. Some of my most, the most entertaining things I've seen um, outside of the cinema are, have been shows like Watchmen. You know what I mean? Like that's some of the, so I, yeah, I, I, but, but again, I mean, thankfully that was years ago and I'm no longer a staff writer level writer, but you know, I just feel like when you're young, it's possible to kind of muck around and jump from show to show at those low levels and, and it not be held against you, but you get past a certain age and I think you need to kind of get it figured out very quickly. But as I said, or you said earlier, I'm a pretty fast learner. So, um, you know, keep my eyes open, keep my ears open, work hard, learn the lessons I need to, and try not to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. That served me pretty well. Well, Ken Powers, it doesn't matter how old you are. You're producing epic, timeless material. <laughs> Thank One you. Night Miami, Pixar Saul. Thank you so much for joining us on Crew Call. Oh, my pleasure. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.